from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Tonight's lecture uh, honours the memory of Lord Brabazon Atara, a man who held the first pilot's licence in his country, who took a pig flying and who had an aircraft named after him. John Moore Brabazon was born in 1884. He was educated at Harrow and he read engineering at Trinity College, Cambridge, but did not graduate. He spent the university holidays working for Charles Rolls as an unpaid mechanic, and he became an apprentice at Dirac in Paris after leaving Cambridge. After learning to fly in 1908 in France, on the 2nd of May 1909, he was the first resident Englishman to make an officially recognised aeroplane flight in the British Isles at Shell Beach in the Isle of Sheppey, with three flights of 450 feet, 600 feet, and 1,500 feet in distance. And in November 1909, as a joke, to prove that pigs could fly, he put a small pig in a waste paper basket tied to the wing strut of his aeroplane. More seriously, on the 8th of March in the following year, 1910, Moore Brabazon became the first person to qualify as a pilot in the United Kingdom and was awarded the Royal Aero Club Aviator's Certificate Number 1. He flew in the Royal Flying Corps during the First World War, serving on the Western Front, where he played a key role in the development of aerial photography and reconnaissance. He finished the war with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, the Military Cross, and the Legion d'Honneur. He then later became a politician and was the Minister of Transport and then the Minister of Aircraft Production during the Second World War. And in 1942, he was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Brabazon of Tara. Then in 1943, he chaired the Brabazon Committee, which investigated the post-war needs of the British Empire for civilian airliners. And as well as the ill-fated aircraft that bore his name, the Brabazon Committee's work led to the development of another six aircraft, most famously the Viscount and the Comet. And in 1949, he received the Royal Aeronautical Society's highest award of honorary fellowship. Well, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we're extremely fortunate to have John Holland Kay, the Chief Executive Officer of Heathrow Airport Holdings, to give the the Barabazan Lecture. Uh, John became the Chief Executive uh, in July of this year, and he previously was a development director with the responsibility for the 1.3 billion uh, per annum program to rebuild Heathrow, including the the new Terminal 2, which opened in June this year. Prior to that, he was commercial director with responsibility for airline business development, retail and property, Heathrow Express and the passenger experience. Over a three-year period, Heathrow's retail income per passenger grew by 10% per annum, and Heathrow was voted the best major airport in Europe. John was previously a member of the executive committee of Taylor Woodrow PLC and held a number of positions, including the divisional chairman of Taylor Wimpy, the operations director of Taylor Woodrow Developments, and commercial director of Taylor Woodrow, Inc. And prior to that, he was a managing director, national sales division of Bass Brewers, and he's also worked as a strategy consultant 
with LEK Consulting for a number of high-profile businesses. The title of John's lecture is Yesterday, Today, Tomorrow, How Heathrow Can Keep Britain at the Heart of the Global Economy. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to ask, uh, invite John Holland Kay to deliver the Brabazon Lecture for 2014. Thank you very much. I feel a little bit in awe in this audience. Uh, I, having only been in the job for four months, there are people here who know far more about the sector than I do, who are far more qualified. So if you'd like to put your hand up and volunteer, please feel free to come and join me. But I'm afraid the price you pay for winning a medal and award is that you have to listen to me talking about uh, Heathrow, one of the uh, subjects I, I most love talking about. And I hope that uh, Lord Rabazin would be pleased with uh, the way that British aviation sector has developed. Um, when you think about where we are today, we have world-leading airlines, world-leading airports, even our, uh, we have world-leading uh, engineer, uh, engineering businesses, designers, uh, aviation companies. We even have world-leading air traffic controllers. Um, NAT sells its business all over the world. It's a fantastic sector. Uh, and I think we are holding our head up internationally. And uh, it's amazing how much life has changed since Lord Brabazon's days. When you think about him first making his flight back in 1908, um, most transport went by boat. I've just finished reading a book about uh, the set in the 19th century uh, when he was born, and uh, the hero has to spend six months traveling to India. It's just remarkable. Now you can get anywhere in the world within 24 hours. Uh, that is how much the world has changed since Lord Brabazon's day. And we're lucky in the UK to have one of the best connected airports in the world. From Heathrow, you can get to over 80 long-haul destinations uh, around the world. It's quite extraordinary. We sort of take it for granted, but there are very few other cities in the world that have those kinds of advantages. Actually, there's only six cities in the whole world, five outside of London, where you can get to more than 50 long-haul destinations. So most countries would kill for the kind of long-haul connections that we get used to in this uh, in this country. And if you just think about it, uh, if you've ever traveled through a major European airport, if you're in Milan or Rome or Brussels, look at the departures board and the mainly European destinations you can go to. Uh, look at the Heathrow departure board and there's all those same European destinations but a lot of exotic places around the world. And actually that's one of the things I love about Heathrow, the sense of possibility that if you, uh, if you were to find your way, you can't do this nowadays of course, but if you were to lose your way one gate would take you to Zanzibar, another gate would take you to New York. Uh, that's the kind of possibility that exists in an airport. That's one of the things I love about it. And Heathrow is pretty unusual. Um, we have over 200 flights a day just to the US. Isn't that extraordinary? 200, over 200 flights a day. Um, and we need to be. I mean, the US is still just about the world's biggest economy. We need to be that well connected to the United States. At least six airlines compete for business on those routes. You know, that's a massive opportunity for us as passengers to have that range of choice. And in the evening, there's a flight every half hour to JFK in New York. That's a, a, an unparalleled service. There is nowhere else in the world that you have that level of choice for going to the US. There's a real advantage for us, uh, given that that is one of the biggest trading flows that we have between this country uh, and uh, the United States. And for Heathrow, for many years, we've been one of the world's largest airports, but we've been working hard in the last 10 years to also make it one of the best. Strange thing is that Heathrow, just 10 years ago in 2004, would have looked familiar to Lord Rabazin. 
He died in 1964. But a lot of the bare mechanics of the airport hadn't really changed that much in uh, the intervening 40 years. The basic layout of three terminals in the central area was nearing completion when he died. It was built to accommodate five million passengers. In 2004, it was coping with nearly 70 million passengers. That is how much we had had to change. We'd had to add new piers. We turned four of our six runways. We did have six runways at one point. We turned four of them into taxiways and stands to cope with the extra growth. And the extra capacity allowed us to get to uh, that 70 million passengers. And the initial Star of David layout that was so elegantly designed after the war just became impractical. Um, we started adding uh, so many bits and pieces that it ended up looking like a spider's web made by a drunken spider. Uh, and a lot of the things that we associate with the old Heathrow, the low ceilings, the long walkways, are because of that incremental growth. Uh, there was no master planning. And increasingly, we, are, we were getting used to an aviation world where you go through brand new purpose-built airports, you know, think about um, Incheon in Korea or uh, Hong Kong Airport, world-class airports designed for uh, the kind of travel that we're doing today. And Heathrow was just from a different age, and something had to change. And our solution was to entirely rebuild the airport. Uh, it's a very challenging thing to do. Heathrow is the most uh, efficient, most intensively used airport in the world. Every 45 seconds, every hour of every day of every year, a plane takes off or lands from the airport every 45 seconds. That's an extraordinary level of intensity to operate at. And during all that time, we have been rebuilding it. And most of it has been done at night when, uh, when it doesn't interrupt the operation. And the model that we adopted was uh, that of Atlanta. Atlanta, as you may know, is the biggest airport in the world, the biggest hub in the world. It's a very efficient layout. We call the layout a toast rack layout. We have um, large terminals where passengers come into the airport, they go through security and check in, drop their bags, spend some time before call, being called to their gate when they would either go to a gate in the main terminal building or in a satellite. It's a very efficient layout. It allows any plane to get to either runway um, very quickly without any of the congestion that came with the old airport. And it's also very scalable. If the airport expands, you can just add another satellite onto it. So it's a very uh, good way of laying out the airport. Um, very challenging, very expensive to do, of course, in, a, uh, in a, uh, a live airport environment. And over the last 10 years, we've spent £11 billion of private money building Terminal 5, which you'll be familiar with, Terminal 2, which opened earlier this year. Anyone been through Terminal 2 yet? What do you think? Way, great. I, I agree. Um, and it's not just about the new terminals. We've invested in new baggage systems so that we can be as efficient as we can, new taxiways, new roads, new railway lines, making it easier for people to get into the airport and easier for people to get around it. It's uh, really transformed the way that we work. And by the end of next year, we will have closed or demolished all of the terminal buildings that Lord Rabazin would have seen in his lifetime. And we'll be a step closer to a brand new world-class hub airport for Britain. Now, I've only been in aviation for five years, so I'm very new to this. But I have been traveling around the world for 30 years, and I've always worked in consumer businesses. And when I think about what a good airport is, my starting point is what is good for the passenger. It's not about size. It's about what is right for the passenger. And if you think about the airports that passengers love best and what we, we really want when we're traveling, what we really want to be able to do is to get straight of our, out of our car and onto a plane. So... You know, the ideal experience is something a little bit like Farnborough. 
Um, in, in, in a commercial airport, of course, um, it's, our, it's our regional airports that we uh, think uh, most highly of. Blackpool, for many years, uh, the late lamented Blackpool was considered one of the best airports uh, in the UK. Actually, Southampton, similarly, Dave is here from Southampton, um, it's very highly rated because it's easy. Uh, you can park close to the airport, you can get into it easily, you can just breeze through and be on your way. That's what we are looking for. And our challenge at Heathrow is how do we replicate that simple, easy experience of going through the airport in the third largest airport in the world? How do we give you your time back, put you in control of your time? Well, it needs to be reliable. It needs to be consistent so that you don't queue at any part of your journey. It needs to be designed so that you can get through quickly and easily. Flights need to arrive and depart on time, so we need to work on punctuality. We need good public transport so that because your journey doesn't start when you enter the terminal, it starts when you leave your home or your office. How can we work with uh, all of the different types of surface access to get people into the airport easily? How do we get rid of sacking over London? Those are the kind of challenges that we are dealing with. And it's not just about having a one-size-fits-all solution. We need to think about how do we meet your needs when you're traveling on business, when you just want to fly through, you don't want to see anyone, just get on my way, I'm an air warrior, I know what I'm doing, leave me alone. Most of the time, you'll probably have left your phone in your pocket, by the way, when you go through security. That's what I normally do when I'm in air warrior mode. But your needs when you're traveling with your young family are entirely different. And we need to have a different set of, set of services for you in, in that world. Similarly, if you're, if you're uh, uh, in a wheelchair, we need a different set of services. We need to think about how we tailor your experience at the airport for your particular journey. And let me just give you an example from the new Terminal 2. If you're traveling with your family, the parking bays closest to the entrance are wider. They're dedicated for uh, people with young families. There's a bit more space so that when you're unpacking buggies and bags and bottles and all those kind of things, you've got the space and time to do it. There are places before you go through security when you can empty out your water bottles, and then when you go through security, you can refill them afterwards. There's dedicated family lanes so that your little ones won't get stressed and frightened going through security. It'll be an exciting experience for them. And then when you get through to the other side, there are places where they can have something to eat. There's, we actually have kids eat free menus for them, and places where they can burn off some energy. So we've tried to think about all the things that you might need on your journey with a young family. But if you're traveling on business, you can fly straight into the airport. You probably don't need to check in because you'll have checked in already, but if you do need to check in, we have a common check-in system where any passenger can check in with any, we can get their boarding pass and bag tag with any airline at any desk. The first airport in the world to be able to do that, so you can just get straight through. There's dedicated fast track service going through the terminal so that you, the quickest way of getting through the airport is to go through as a business passenger you know you can get through quickly every time and straight into your lounge or onto your gate. That's the quickest way of getting through. And on the way back, you probably don't have any bags to check in, in which case you can just go straight through one of the 10 e-gates in immigration, uh, very quick to get through. You don't need to pick up a bag, you just walk straight through two and a half minutes if you don't have a good immigration to get from the nearest gate to your car. That is a world-class experience. I actually had, had some feedback from a passenger who, between the door opening on his plane to stepping off the train at Paddington Station, took him less than half an hour. Can you name me any airport in the world where you can get from your plane to downtown in less than half an hour? That is a world-class experience, and that is getting close to the experience you will have at an airport as Southampton. And uh, passengers tell us they like what we're doing. <coughs> Ten years ago, you may remember, we were rated quite poorly. We tended to 
be considered one of the worst major airports in Europe. The Sunday Times loved to have league tables, which showed us at number 120 in the list of European airports being outgunned by Luton. Um, not anymore. Not anymore. We are now rated the best major airport in Europe. We've actually just overtaken Amsterdam, um, who have held that crown for many, many years. If the new Terminal 2 was a standalone airport, it would be rated by passengers the best airport in Europe. That is how far we have come. And Terminal 5 has been voted by passengers the best airport terminal in the world for the last three years. That's a world-class uh, operation. Um, we're actually rated as one of the best airports in Europe now. My ambition is that we take Heathrow from being one of the best in Europe to being one of the best in the world, up there with Singapore and Hong Kong and Incheon in Korea. Better passenger experience, better punctuality, lower cost of operation. We'll be doing a lot of that anyway, but we can do so much more with expansion. Britain can do, do better with an expanded Heathrow. We can connect all of Britain, all the regions and cities of Britain to global growth. And that is the opportunity that we have. We can get back our position as the world's leading hub, and we can keep Britain at the heart of the global economy. Now, uh, I don't know whether I need to explain a hub to this audience or not, but I'm surprised by how many people uh, keep telling me how hub airports don't really matter anymore, that um, uh, the, the hub is dead. So I should just uh, say a little bit about it. Um, hub and spoke, which is, which is what we tend to think of, is the most efficient way of connecting people and things, not just in aviation, but in pretty much anything that we do. And the equation is a pretty simple one. If you've got 10 different destinations you want to connect together, if you try and connect them all with a direct line between each one, you'll need 45 flights. It's uneconomic. It is uh, environmentally very poor. Um, it's not necessarily a good passenger experience. But bring them all together in a single hub, and you only need nine flights to make that work. That allows airlines, who operate on very slim margins, to offer long-haul flights all over the world on thin routes that otherwise would not be viable. Um, and it's not something special to, to airlines. This, is, this has been the case for thousands of years. All roads used to lead to Rome. Well, there's a good reason for that. Rome was the hub, and everything else was a spoke. But the same applies with Royal Mail, with railway, with shipping ports. But even the great disruptors of the world, eBay and Google, they all use the hub-and-spoke system. It is the most efficient way of connecting things. So when people will tell you that hubs no longer work, they are turning the fundamental law of economics on its head. They don't just deserve a new runway at Gatwick, if that's their argument. They deserve the Nobel Prize for economics. Now, we know that network airlines use the same kind of model. They bring passengers together from all over the region into a hub airport, and they redistribute them onto long-haul flights. That's what British Airways does, Lufthansa does uh, in Frankfurt. That's what uh, uh, Air France, KLM do. And transfer passengers are fundamental to uh, the way that long-haul flying works. A third of all of our passengers are transfer passengers. That's the business person in Milan who can't get directly to worldwide markets, who has to fly through Heathrow to get to the United States. That's a huge benefit for us at the expense of somebody else. Three quarters of all the long-haul routes out of Heathrow, so that's, that's what best part of 60 flight routes, would not be viable without transfer passengers. If you take somewhere like Mexico City, we have a couple of flights a day to Mexico City. It's a city the size of London. That's how significant it is, but it's growing a lot quicker. It grows about 5% a year. Um, if we didn't have transfer passengers, that flight wouldn't operate. Um, half the passengers 
on the, on the average day are transferring from other parts of Europe. Some days more, some days less. And if we didn't have that, we would all be flying via Miami to get to Mexico City when we need to do business there. I don't know if you've flown through Miami, but trust me, flying direct from Heathrow is a, uh, in a, a league of its own. And the people who benefit most from having a hub airport are the people who live close to it. We in London and the southeast get the advantage of regular direct flights without the need to transfer. And that's why so many companies have based themselves close to Heathrow. More than 200 of the 300 biggest companies in the UK are within 25 miles of Heathrow. That's no coincidence. That is uh, because they know that anywhere they need to get to, they can get there quickly and easily. And the whole UK benefits from that. Did you know we do 20 times more trade with emerging economies if we have those direct flights coming in than if we don't have them? That's the benefit of uh, having trade, because it's not just about people, it's also about goods. Heathrow is the biggest export base in the whole of the UK. Over a quarter of all the UK's exports go through Heathrow, over a quarter. So when the government talks about doubling the size of exports from the UK, how are you going to do it if you don't increase Heathrow? Because all the, we tend to measure cargo by weight. It's not a very good way of measuring pharmaceuticals or IT. It's very good for sand and gravel, but not very good for the high-value things we need to get to market very quickly that need to be treated very carefully. And it's not just about goods. It's also about getting inward investors into the UK. It's about uh, getting tourists to come and spend their money here, getting students to come and spend their money here. Now, you may have heard that the 787 Dreamliner is going to change all that. We, they are hub busters. Um, but I forget which movie it is, um, but uh, for this one, you need to follow the money. All the not quite all, all the 787s, only 85% of 787s are being bought by network airlines operating a hub-and-spoke system out of their base hub. 85% of them are being bought by them. And the reason they're doing it is because it makes it easier, it's partly fleet replacement, it's partly just, it makes it easier for them to get to secondary cities from their hub market. So that'll open up uh, the world to them. And if that means that you will be able to get from one of the big hubs like Chicago or Singapore to Birmingham or Manchester, well, that's a fantastic thing. But it doesn't mean that the hub model is dead. It just means that there are more spokes going into bigger hubs. That's all it means. And if you look at where 787s are flying to, well, very many of them are flying into Heathrow because BA is buying them, all the airlines who fly into Heathrow is buying them. The 787 will allow us to be able to get to cities and markets that we can't currently get to and make the UK better connected. It is not the end of the hub. Um, so, but it is a good thing. But an airport can only be a hub if you've got a network airline who wants to operate there. If BA didn't exist, Heathrow would not be a hub. We have an awful lot of wasted facilities at Heathrow, but we wouldn't be a hub. Um, uh, but all airlines have very significant uh, transfer feed in and out of British Airways, so it's very much um, a single organism. But the transfer flows between uh, British Airways flights, but between the other airlines and, and British Airways, drive a huge amount of the design of the airport because we're designed to allow passengers and bags to move around quickly. Our transfer bag system is very sophisticated. We can get a bag straight to the head of a stand if we need to get a bag moving quickly um, between planes. Um, we have separate uh, transfer security systems, separate passenger facilities designed for transfer passengers. We locate the airlines with the biggest transfer flows between them next to one another. So typically we put all of the Star Alliance airlines in Terminal 2, one world into T3 and T5, 
SkyTeam and Terminal 4. It's not a very efficient use of space, actually, but it's very good for the passenger. It makes it easier for them to make their connections, and it's better for the airlines because they can make more money out of it. You would never do any of these things if you weren't a hub airport. So Gawick and Sansid don't need to do any of those things. But hub airports do compete with each other because transfer passengers have choices. If you think about, if you go to Australia, which I'm sure, sure some of us have done from time to time, if you're the Queen, you can fly direct on the 777 to Perth from Heathrow. That's a fantastic experience, but she's the only person I know of who has had that advantage. Most of us, flying commercially, will have to transfer through somewhere. And we've got loads of choice. You can go through Singapore, through Dubai, through Hong Kong. Uh, you can go through um, uh, uh, China now as well. And all of those cities are competing to try to get your business, to make you choose to go through there. Uh, and many of those cities, if you think about somewhere like Singapore, they've got very small local demand. They're very, very dependent upon transfer passengers to be able to put on long-haul flights to lots of the markets they want to get to. Changi Airport puts Singapore on the map. It makes it the trading center of its part of the world. Um, so it's a vital part of its national infrastructure. And if you think about Changi, if you've, anyone traveled through Changi Airport? Think about the things they have there, the butterfly garden, the swimming pool outside, the cinema, the gym, the, the hotel, um, amazing facilities there that they want people to come and use because if you've got a six-hour layover, you're going to ideally choose to spend it somewhere where you're going to enjoy yourself. I'm not going to talk about airports you might not enjoy yourself being in so much. A few, hour, a few years ago, they put in a slide that allowed you to get from one level to another. They're perfectly good lifts, but they put a slide in. Why? Because it's a bit of fun. It's something that we're still talking about today. I'm talking about it today. And that's what they want to do. They want people saying, have you seen what they've got in Singapore? Isn't that fantastic? We've got to go through there next time we're flying through. That is competition between hub airports. Look at the new Doha airport. I don't know if you've had a chance to go through there yet. It is a fantastic airport. And they've got a slightly different strategy. Everything is beautiful and amazing but they're particularly targeting premium passengers who are flying business and first class. They've got fantastic lounges, very spacious, fabulous food. They also have a hotel and a swimming pool. They have a gym. Uh, they have squash courts. They have two squash courts outside. That's another thing to talk about. If you haven't got a slide, have a squash court. Um, but what they're doing very cleverly is saying, we don't want to be the biggest hub in the region, but we want the highest value passengers to choose to come through Doha because that will help us to put Qatar on the map and help us to make Qatar the premium center in our part of the world. That is competition between hubs. In Europe, we have four large hub airports, Amsterdam and Frankfurt. They are similar in some ways to, uh, to the Middle Eastern hubs in that they have a very small local market and they're very dependent on transfer flows. And Schiphol has followed Changi's strategy of having fabulous facilities. They've got many of the things that, that Changi have they also have a museum, uh, an art gallery, uh, um, airside, and they even built a slide. So they're copying a lot of the things they, oh, people are talking about Changi, let's put a slide in. But they'll come and talk about Amsterdam as well. I'm talking about it, I shouldn't do that. And the Schiphol helps the Netherlands to punch above its weight. Netherlands is an economy a third the size of the UK, and yet they have 40 flights a week to mainland China. The same number as we have to mainland China. Why, why on earth? Does the Netherlands have 40 flights a week to mainland China? It's extraordinary that they can achieve that, but they can because uh, they have invested in Schiphol. They have the capacity to invest in it. And on the back of that, th those uh, flights they have to mainland China, 
they have as many tourists going to the Netherlands from mainland China as we get coming to the UK. Why? It's a lovely country, Holland. But why on earth do tourists choose to go there when they could come here? Well, because they can get there. It's a nice place, but they can get there. They also have the same level of exports from the Netherlands to mainland China as the UK has to mainland China. Why? Because they've got the same number of flights as we have. Paris and Frankfurt have over 60 flights a week to mainland China, and they are in a league of their own when it comes to both tourists going into those countries, beautiful though they are, and exports going to those markets. Now, having flights uh, is not the only thing you need to have a great uh, export economy, but without flights, how can you have a great export economy? No matter how good your exporters are, how can they possibly get their goods to market? Are we going to rely for our export strategy on the whims of the French, the Germans, the Turks, the Middle East? Are we going to do that? Uh, those are the kind of choices that we are facing. And we are being outcompeted by, uh, 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 by the Dutch and the French and the Germans in this. London has the strongest local demand and huge transfer flows, the best of both worlds. And that is why Heathrow is today the biggest airport in Europe and the third largest in the world. That is why you can get to more than 80 long-haul destinations out of Heathrow. And given a chance, Heathrow and the UK economy should be the winner among the Europeans. And the reason that we aren't is because of lack of capacity here at Heathrow. Dubai is overtaking us this year as the biggest international airport in the world. Paris is overtaking us with the most long-haul destinations. Uh, and we are fighting, fighting in this race. We are, we are running this race with, with both our legs tied together. We're fighting with both our hands tied behind our back. Because we're full. We have a limit of 480,000 movements a year. And we've been full for the last 10 years. We do more with our two runways than most airports do with three, four, or five. It's not about the number of runways you have. It is about what you do with them. But as we know, the global economy is changing. All of the global growth is happening in Asia, North and South America. Europe is a mature market. We're not going to get growth coming out of Europe except the leftovers from those European countries. The economic powerhouses that we need to get to are places that we had barely heard of 10 years ago. Places like Chongqing and Wuhan in China, we've barely heard of those today. But those are the places where business is going. And China soon will be uh, overtaking the US as the biggest economy in the world. So we have those 200 flights a day to the US. How many will we need to China in 30 years' time if we're going to be uh, competing at the center of the global economy? Because to win the race for growth, we don't need only as many flights to those markets as the French and the Germans do. We need more. If you're going to win, you need more flights to more cities, more flights. And we can win this if only we have the extra capacity to be able to do it. And the prize is huge. It was probably a modest estimate. There's 100 billion pounds of value for the British economy and 120,000 new jobs. And that will keep Britain right at the heart of the global economy where we have been. We've actually had the biggest port in the UK, uh, biggest port in the world has been in the UK for the last 350 years. First it was the Port of London, now sadly closed, and then it, Heathrow Airport took over. Um, but that crown for the first time in 350 years is going to the Middle East. But there is huge demand from overseas airlines to come here. Um, but if they can't come here, instead they go to one of the European hubs, Paris, Amsterdam or Frankfurt, because they can get the transfer flows there to fill their planes and make it work. And a couple of weeks ago, the chief executive of ANA from Japan 
announced that his airline would look at expanding routes from Germany if they couldn't get into Heathrow. And he isn't alone. I went out to China and Korea recently and heard exactly the same message from them. Air China told me that, that the UK would be their biggest base in Europe if only they could get more flights into Heathrow. Instead, they're going to have to go through France and Germany. And if expansion at Gatwick was the answer, wouldn't they be taking advantage of Heathrow being full by establishing routes to all those growth markets? Well, airlines that can't get into Heathrow, Air China, Korean Air, they've tried going to Gatwick, and within 18 months, they pulled out because they couldn't make it work. Without the transfer flows, uh, they can get a Heathrow. Without the catchment area at Heathrow, they just couldn't make it work. So our growth, the growth that could be ours in the UK, is going to overseas markets. And growth won't wait for us to add capacity. It's going to take us 10 years to add new capacity in the UK, wherever that might be. And in the meantime, we will be falling behind our competitors. And that's why the Davis Commission, which is um, looking at airport expansion, is the last and best opportunity to connect all of Britain to global growth. It's clarified that we, only, that we do need extra runway capacity in the southeast. And it's filtered out some of the easy solutions, such as Northolt and Manston, which always get trotted out whenever people talk about airport expansion. And it's ruled out some of the difficult ones, such as Thames Estuary, which uh, you will know had a lot of um, uh, political momentum behind it. Um, and it's given us the space as promoters to develop our plans through public consultation and to build political consensus. At Heathrow, we have a new proposal, very different from the one that was proposed in the 2002 White Paper. It's a full-length runway. It's further to the west, so it's away from London. The flight path will come in over the M4. And that will allow us to have any plane um, landing and taking off from it. It'll increase hub capacity by about 50%, while still having fewer people in our noise footprint in 2030 than today. It'll fit within the government's commitments on climate change. It'll put Heathrow at the heart of an integrated transport network. That's something we've never had in this country. We'll have HS2 connecting into the north. We'll have the Western Rail access going to Wales and the west. We'll have Southern Rail access uh, going down to the south coast. And we'll have Crossrail going across London. And Stratford, the east end of London, will be closer to Heathrow. Well, it is closer to Heathrow today than to the Thames Estuary. But you'll be able to get there as quickly as you can get to Heathrow from Reading. It'll take only 40 minutes by crossrail. So in terms of regenerating London, that's a fantastic opportunity. And we can add another 40 new long-haul destinations and double our export capacity. That's a massive opportunity. Um, but also for the UK, we can start to reconnect bits of the UK that have been cut off from their global markets. Places like Inverness, which used to have a flight into Heathrow, but doesn't anymore. So if you're Johnson & Johnson with your worldwide diabetes centre based in Inverness, Today, you can only get there by flying into Heathrow and taking a taxi to Luton, and then flying up from Luton when there's a plane going. Or you can fly to Amsterdam and then back on yourself when KLM feel like offering that service. It's not good enough for investors wanting to invest in the regions of the UK, um, but with investment at Heathrow, we can get back to Inverness and Jersey and Newquay and Humberside, all those places that have been cut off over the last few years. <coughs> But the real competition is not between Gatwick and Heathrow. We do very different things. It's between the UK, France, Germany, Turkey, the Middle East. They want the economic growth that could be ours. By adding one new runway at Heathrow, we'll actually have more capacity than Paris, Amsterdam or Frankfurt. And we can allow Britain to be the winner in the race for growth. The competitive advantage we have built up over hundreds of years of being a trading nation, uh, being one of the world's leading economies, 
is slowly being eroded. And unless we do something about that in our generation, our children and their children will not be able to have the advantages that we have enjoyed. If we're ambitious, we need to get back in the race and address the bottleneck in our economy by expanding Heathrow, the UK's hub airport. Thank you. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.